Hello and welcome to this Blore in Audio podcast. I'm Elizabeth Hodson, a BBC Business and Economics presenter and producer, and today I'm joined by David Friedland, Senior Vice President at data management company IRI, that's Innovative Routines International. It specialises in high-speed data manipulation and data-centric security, which we'll be hearing more about very shortly. I'm also joined by Paul Bevan, a Research Director of IT Infrastructure at Blore Research. So to start us off, David, tell us a little bit more about what you do and what IRI does. Sure, Elizabeth. You summed up pretty well what IRI does. We're an independent software vendor uh, based in Central Florida. We specialize, as you said, in fast manipulation of data and the uh, targeted discovery and de-identification of sensitive data. At the company that I've been with for more than 30 years, I do a variety of things, uh, mainly in the commercial realm, but I've tended to get into the uh, project management and, and product development aspects that are, that are more technical. Well, that's a great summary, David. So, Paul, please could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do at Bloor, please? Okay. well, Bloor Research is an IT analyst house. Uh, And really, we're sort of act as a bridge between vendors and end users of of information technology, trying to help them sort of navigate that world. Um, My particular role has been uh, in IT infrastructure, but data has become more and more obviously important as time goes on. But I have a specific interest here, uh, which is why I think I mean, I'm working on this particular project. And that is, uh, for 10 years, I was a non-executive director in a National Health Service Trust. So some insights, I think, in terms of uh, the area we're talking about. And for listeners in the US, the National Health Service is the publicly funded healthcare system in the UK. So, Paul, you've touched on the importance of data, but David, let's get to the crux of this. Why is data so important? Well, it's always important in every industry, but in the healthcare industry in particular, I think it's the data that provides a, a shareable and hopefully reliable construct for concisely recording the story of the patient or patients in multiple realms, from the clinical to the transactional details around billing and the insurance, which finances the whole industry. And patient data is really also key to the research that's performed to find you know, biopharmacological and immunological treatments, for example, and in rare cases, cures. In terms of you know, adding to what David said, I think we've seen very clearly here in the UK, and I'm sure it's happened globally, was the um, impact of COVID-19. And the way in which data scientists in particular, although in a slightly embarrassing and sort of awkward position at the start of the pandemic, and certainly in terms of the focus of the public on them, the information and data provided during that experience was absolutely crucial in helping both hospitals to deal with, you know, up and coming surges in infection, but also in in guiding sort of how we react to the pandemic. So I think, you know, again, the much more appreciation of data in public health environments and, and healthcare environments now as a result of the pandemic. David, we'd certainly call the pandemic a challenging health outcome goal. But how do you feel that data can help with both this and more general kinds of goals? Right. It's the pandemic is sort of the latest example of what we can all readily bring to mind around where data was used or misused in the course of it. But 
generally speaking throughout history and especially going forward with new technology and new forms of data and more volumes especially and AI and so forth, the data that's being used by these organizations is, is still just basically needed to properly treat people using diagnostic hardware, for example. Uh, the results of tests are data that get input into electronic health records by way of example, or even feedback to improve the reliability and accuracy of those diagnostic machines. The data is still being used to get bills paid by insurance companies generally, or maybe patients, unfortunately. Um, those bills need to be vetted and analyzed. And of course, again, researchers, COVID or otherwise, need data about treatment paradigms to know if those therapies are working and data is, is needed to improve it. Just think about uh, genomic research, for example, and everything going on to create uh, immunological-based therapies. That's interesting because it raises a number of sort of potential challenges and, and probably highlights the unique nature of healthcare markets. Because obviously any sector is seeing a, an explosion of data volumes, um, which is an ongoing and obvious challenge. But healthcare has got some quite unusual and if not completely unique challenges. And one is organisational. In order to deliver patient-centred outcomes, and we've been talking about the patient journey, data needs to be collected from you know, multiple different sources. And that's primary care, your, your GP or your, your local doctor, secondary care, which is the sort of the, the hospital, but also specialist tertiary care and even social care these days. So actually joining everything up. So that's, that's quite a challenge. And the other major issue, which probably makes it even more unique, I think, than anything, is, is, is the political and social sensitivity about the sharing of patient data. And David talked about uh, the research efforts going on. It raises all sorts of questions that make it particularly challenging uh, to use data in the most effective way to solve some of the problems we're facing. Something I picked up from David was the word misuse, and I think that's getting to the centre of the data management challenges we're talking about. So how do you try and combat the misuse of data? Well, in our case, Elizabeth, we're called on, especially in, in the wake of HIPAA, which was uh, a law passed in the US in 1996, and then with healthcare data being among the most sensitive out there in terms of its potential for misuse, misappropriation, privacy compromise, vulnerabilities around insurance that the data is improperly disclosed and on and on. Uh, the challenge for us as a company is, is to help folks that are charged with uh, collecting and processing healthcare data for various reasons uh, to, to discover what's sensitive and de-identify it you know, in ways that are applicable to uh, their own business rules and international privacy requirements like HIPAA or the GDPR. And, and on and on. And these laws are being promulgated exactly to address that issue of sensitive patient data being, you know, insufficiently protected. And that's a problem rife throughout the healthcare industry worldwide, even to this day. So it's a big business. Yeah, I mean, clearly, it's, you know, the whole issue has become very politically sensitive, uh, particularly as third party organizations like research institutions want to use patient data. So, you know, a lot of the focus on anonymizing data is is far more challenging than it is for normal commercial companies, particularly, and David can probably elaborate a little bit on this, is that the types of data where personal information can be uh, exposed is very, very broad indeed. You know, you, you think of standard address, name, details, age, you know, ethnicity, details, etc., but you know, even things like uh, scans will have 
personally identifiable uh, data on the scan. So you're having to deal with issues around effectively very different forms of data, objects uh, um, that could be pictures, could be documents, and therefore it becomes a very onerous task, much more onerous, I think, uh, in order to meet the sort of HIPAA, GDPR, and, and HIPAA is very, very specific uh, around healthcare. The UK and European Union GDPR are slightly more generic, but have been overlaid with all sorts of local processes and regulations from people like the UK National Health Service in terms of ensuring processes followed. It is definitely very much a challenge when you think of everything from scans to spreadsheets to documents to databases where you need to search for that information. David, you're an international company, so how difficult is it to negotiate regulations in different territories? Customers coming at us already are aware of their requirements to a large extent, although we do help them confirm that where we can that they're meeting those requirements. And obviously, we've paid particular attention, being a U.S. company, on the requirements of HIPAA. And as Paul said, um, the challenges around HIPAA compliance are, are myriad. They extend beyond data-centric issues, although that's what we focus on. So in terms of HIPAA, the HIPAA privacy rule in the U.S. has two fundamental de-identification methods that are recognized and that our customers have to follow and we need to help them follow. One is known as the safe harbor method, where you essentially have to remove or otherwise de-identify 18 different types of key or direct identifiers about a patient. And this is the protected health information, like their dates of birth and their names, of course, and addresses and patient ID numbers and things that are essentially unique to that individual. The other DID method that HIPAA requires, uh, or at least um, says that you can comply with in the alternative is typical of the marketing and research community known as the expert determination method. And this is where you are, instead of focusing strictly on the uh, on de-identifying the key identifiers, you're also concerned with anonymizing what are known as quasi or indirect identifiers, which essentially are the demographic details about patients like their age and and date of birth and medical condition, uh, perhaps their postal code, their race and their profession, things that are true about them as individuals, but not unique to them as individuals. And so because that demographic information is still important uh, for for marketing and research purposes, the, the goal then is to anonymize that data by doing things like random noise or blurring to a birth date or an age or binning, or otherwise called bucketing, generalizing data about someone's, um, let's say, medical condition. So whether they have carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, melanoma, these would just be skin cancers, to be more general, but still accurate, you see. And so that becomes less likely to identify a patient if that particular information were exposed. So either way, whether you're de-identifying the key identifiers and or anonymizing the quasi-identifiers, you're getting to a better point for balancing the utility of data with the privacy of data in a research or marketing setting. All of this is very time-consuming, isn't it? And in fact, there was a recent Anaconda State of Data Science report that said data scientists are spending up to 45% of their entire time on data preparation tasks. So is this a big problem and can anything be done about it? Yeah, not only do you have to assess the risk of re-identification and then worry about masking it in the ways that I just described, 
you also have to bring a whole lot of data in different sources and silos and formats, as Paul alluded to earlier, together so that the data can be uh, essentially homogenized to a large extent, cleansed, duplicated, and, and readied for analytics. And because of the volume and the variety of data that's coming in all these different vectors, um, it's a pretty significant challenge. A technology to prepare and protect that data needs to be able to handle the volume and the variety and the sensitivity of it. Yeah, so on top of what uh, David was talking about, data scientists are effectively the, the most expensive people resource in any data environment. And to have them spending 45% of their time on tasks that are really, you know, should be automated or should be fairly sort of standard and straightforward is clearly a waste of resources. And I'm sure David at IRI will will say how they sort out and, and resolve some of those issues to ensure that data scientists only spend their time doing the most productive analysis work. Yeah, that's right, Paul. The preparation of data is an arduous task that should be reduced and automated to whatever extents are feasible, uh, not just in terms of, of readying the data for analytics, but also, of course, as we discussed before, um, anonymizing it or otherwise protecting it so that it's in a compliant state for DevOps and AI models and whatever is needed to perform the necessary application logic or analytic outcomes people are looking for. So at, at IRI, uh, as a software vendor that has produced the Veracity platform, the culmination of many decades of development in data manipulation, the key is to provide a, a platform for data scientists, for developers, for DBAs, for you know, even managers to connect to and to collect and to search through their data to discover what they need, uh, to discover what's sensitive, and to bring it together through essentially standard ETL processes to a large extent uh, so that they can be homogenized, staged, cleansed, transformed, reformatted, and essentially fed into whatever particular analytic engines or platforms or visualization tools that those particular folks need to make use of the information that originally was data. So in a nutshell, we're turning data into information through the processes of data discovery, integration, migration, governance, and reporting, or at least um, wrangling for analytics. This is an area which a lot of companies are competing in to reduce that data preparation time. So what makes Veracity unique, David? I would say the optimization and the consolidation of the biggest basic data processing tasks, the transformation of data that you think of in an ETL setting or in uh, a setting where mainframes used to process large volumes of data. Now it's you know down to the PC level where Veracity is using a, you know the tried and true CoSort engine, which has been around since the early 80s, late 70s, that is doing the combined work of parallel sorting, or I should say multi-threaded sorting, which leads to the ability to, of course, um, join and aggregate data in the same pass as the sort, by the way, along with uh, the cleansing of the data, the reformatting of the data, the masking of the data, 
All of these things are not only optimized uh, through the use of the Veracity co-sort engine, but consolidated in a single job if people have the, the wherewithal to put those things in one or just a few steps, uh, as opposed to more traditional ETL tools where all of those tasks are typically stepped individually and you have to make multiple passes through the data. Uh, with Veracity, you don't have to do that. And so there's a great efficiency that comes from essentially one pass I.O., where all the data come together, it's transformed in lots of different ways, and spit out into different outputs in different formats all at the same time. So I think that's what makes Veracity special and particularly suited to high volumes of data that need all these different types of treatments to prepare it for analytics. Yeah, I think what, what we've seen at Blur is also the fact that you know, most of the tools out there are not pulled together in a platform in quite the same way that Veracity does. I mean, what you need to be looking for is some sort of unified, integrated platform rather than just a collection of tools. Because with a collection of tools, as David sort of intimated there, you end up doing each of the tasks he talked about in, in sort of serial mode, which takes a long time. So I think one of the key benefits we see to Veracity as well is the fact that it does it all in parallel in a single pass, which really speeds up the process. And if you think about the importance of data, one of the key importances of data is timeliness. So if you can't get it clean quickly and it's out of date by the time you've got it clean, uh, you've wasted all that effort. And to that end, Paul, you also mentioned earlier the importance of automating these processes to take the burden of remembering and manually rerunning jobs, especially when they've been serialized already, into what are effectively batch scripts, if you will, that Veracity prepares in its graphical environment. And so once you have these scripts that are essentially command line executable uh, by virtue of that, that executable, you can put them into a scheduled queue using the tool that we provide or whatever third-party automation tool that, that would be preferred or within the scope of a, of a DevOps type of a, a CICD pipeline, if you will, uh, so that all of that is in the background and it just keeps happening. You know, you set it and forget it. We've covered a lot of ground, but I know the number of challenges in this area is infinite and there was something else you wanted to add, wasn't there? Yeah, I, I think so, Elizabeth. In addition to all of the structured data processing we've just described uh, in the service of data preparation for analytics, going back to the earlier conversation about anonymization of data, I think one of the key challenges in, in, in healthcare in particular, and as Paul said earlier on, is the, the need to discover and de-identify protected health information that are sitting in semi and unstructured, otherwise known as dark data silos. So you have sources in different formats, DICOM medical studies, which are a particular industry format that is kind of hard to, to deal with. Think about your, your x-rays and your MRIs and your PET and CAT scans. There's a lot of PAHI floating around there that needs to be found and fixed. You also have data that's being uh, stored in NoSQL databases, a lot of electronic data interchange EDI files and HL7 and X12 formats, which are common to healthcare, medical insurance, billing, and, and financial transactions. So these types of formats are special to the healthcare industry, and they do require specialized tooling, which in Veracity we do have through our Dark Shield component, to discover the data in those different kinds of formats. Again, images, PDFs, Word, Excel, NoSQL and relational databases, it has to be found and it has to be de-identified in the ways that we talked about earlier, right? Through masking, you know, encryption, redaction, other forms of de-identification or anonymization to 
comply with the expert determination method of HIPAA through blurring and generalizing the data. So whether, again, the sources are structured, semi-structured, or unstructured, the problem is the same. That data needs to be found and fixed so that it can be used and shared in a reliable, compliant way. We've heard about all the challenges. So what should IT and business leaders be doing now to ensure that they optimise the effectiveness and compliance of the data that they hold? And David, I'll come to you first, please. Well, I think, Elizabeth, these leaders need to be thinking about how to keep this data healthy, <laughs> clean, if you will, scrubbed, duplicated, and then you know, documented, cataloged. It needs to be enriched. So of a high state of quality and to some extent unification through the ETL processes we described earlier, uh, and, and importantly, keeping it safe to be de-identified in production to all but those authorized to, to make use of it. And in test environments, that data needs to be realistic, but not real. So in a platform that's managing this data, you really need tooling that can address these types of challenges that come from, again, the, the volume, the variety, and the sensitivity of data that is inherent in all of these different healthcare data processing scenarios that we've discussed. And it is helpful to have such a platform that becomes a handy tool where you can make use of all this data so that it can be turned successfully into useful and compliant information in a way that you know, both developers and, and regular business folks can make use of together. Yeah, and, and to elaborate on what, what David's been saying, within the National Health Service, you know, there's a lack of understanding about the difference between information and data. There's a wealth of data there. And they, they always say, oh, we don't need any more data, we need information. I think it's really getting them then to understand the needs for quality in that underlying data, which I don't think they've really got to grips with. And then on in, you know, it's actually spending some time and effort on the tooling required and the automation required to make that happen quickly. Because again, one of the challenges of any data environment is the timeliness of the data and therefore the ability of an integrated platform like Veracity to do all the data preparation work almost in a single pass makes that sort of a critical capability that it's got and makes it stand out. So I think that's what managers need to be getting their heads around uh, if it's any different in the States and it's, uh, you know, they're better at doing that, that's great. But but certainly here within the UK market, and I suspect a lot of other publicly funded health environments, that challenge of getting people to understand the difference between data and information is, is critical. Well, that was a great point to end on, Paul. So thanks very much to you and IRI's David Friedland for making this Blur in Audio podcast an absolutely essential listen. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, David. Fascinating conversation. Thank you, Elizabeth and Paul. It's always uh, invaluable to have your, your insight and we appreciate the time you took to put this together.